As I already mentioned tonight, we are thankful to be able to come together, aren't we? There are others, of course, whose circumstances in life, perhaps health-wise and others, are preventing them. And you and I are thankful God has so showered us with the opportunity to come and tonight to sing as we've done, to pray as we've done, and at least for the next few moments to give some consideration to a question, a topic known as fasting in the Bible. In fact, on this next slide, one that will at least begin by introduction, some of the thoughts surround the following. Interestingly, as you and I appreciate, it is our desire always to be those who would please the Lord by following His commandments, by doing that which He says for us to do, and for the purpose that He gives us as to why we should do it. Well, with all that noted, of course, you and I know very well that across the centuries, many things that are spoken of in the Bible, mankind on occasion has changed it. For instance, the New Testament teaches the Lord's Supper is to be taken every first day of the week. There are men, however, who take it once a month, once a year. And so they have taken the liberty to suppose that what the Bible says, at least on that regard, is not that important. Well, what about other examples like baptism? There are some who do not think it's that significant, and yet you and I know that it is very significant. What about fasting? Maybe you and I don't think that often about it. It's certainly not something that is as commonly discussed as we read about it in the Bible. Tonight, let's give some consideration to what, what does the Bible have to say about the, the act of fasting. As we close that slide and turn to, to another one, we shall at least in part ask, so should we be fasting today? Is this a matter that God expects of us? On this next slide, let's begin then to notice first some introductory matters, some material, if you please, about the topic itself. First of all, although it may seldom be described or at least discussed, note how often it occurs in the Bible. Seventy-four direct references to fasting in the Bible. And may I again say that's direct references. It would appear many additional indirect references to it. And of those 74, 33 of them. An insignificant fraction is actually in the New Testament. That immediately suggests, again, that fasting was something that the Lord and His disciples and even the first century church is frequently mentioned in relation to. When we add to that the following, it is a topic, it is a matter of consideration that occurs in a number of interesting contexts, not the least of which is note this number. That number I just mentioned to you, maybe you and I should be impressed to observe then that that number of references to fasting makes fasting occur more often in the Word of God than references to the collection. That is to say, there are more references in the Bible to fasting than there are to the collection on the first day of the week. There are more references in the Bible to fasting than there is to the confession that occurs right before baptism. All of that, again, invites us to note the number of references and the placement of their occurrence immediately suggests at least something worthy of consideration. To that, let me add the following. What do we mean by it? By definition, fasting is this, to abstain as a religious exercise from food and drink. Now, would you please be impressed then that merely abstaining from food and drink 
although that might, from the world's perspective, be fasting, it wouldn't satisfy the biblical definition. Isn't it true? There are times for medical purposes you may be told not to eat or drink anything. Well, that doesn't qualify, <clears throat> excuse me, as religious fasting. That's only for a medical purpose, maybe for a procedure that you're about to have done. We mean to hear that because of one's allegiance to God, due to a desire for some specifically religious purpose, I am abstaining from food. I'm abstaining also from, from liquid. All that leads me to note this. The kind of fasting we then are describing is one that has a religious exercise as a part of it. In Luke chapter 2, verse 37, there we have mention of that, that aged widow named Anna. And it specifically says that she labored in fastings and prayers at the temple night and day. She was frequently found then in fasting, but again, it wasn't for any purpose other than a specific religious exercise. And in fact, that kind of description we find all throughout the Bible. One more thing about that slide. The fasting that we find in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, appears to have a variety of durations in relation to it. Some fasted for long periods of time, but others it wasn't nearly that long. As we're about to see in a moment, for some it was three days. For others it may have been 40 days. All of that to be said, God never specified it would appear the specific length of time, but left that to the purview and the decision of each individual person. With that said, what does the Bible teach about it today? We aren't immediately interested, I suppose, for our application in what was done in the days of Moses or even in the days of the late Old Testament. We shall look at a number of those passages over the duration of, of the lesson tonight, but what about fasting today? Our next slide will be one that brings us to appreciate Fasting today is the title that I have given to, to this particular slide. The disciples of John, as well as the Pharisees of the Lord's day, were those who participated in fasting. I say that because of Mark chapter 2, verse 18. You might recall that they, in fact, directly came before Jesus, and they said the disciples of John fast, the Pharisees fast, but Jesus, your disciples do not. Again, this was an observation that they made about the Lord's disciples. Now, Jesus rather quickly taught them something. He said, while I'm here, they have no reason to fast. It's a time of joy, a time of teaching, but once I'm gone, then they'll fast. So you'll notice again that fasting was a rather common activity by the disciples of not only John, but even, in fact, later, as we'll see, even of those of Jesus. When fasting is seen in that light, you'll notice that the Lord made a rather dramatic statement in Matthew chapter 6. May I invite you to notice the way that He phrases this. In Matthew chapter 6, note with me the language occurring in the following placement. In verse number 16, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. 
of interest to me at least, and I'm sure to each of us, is this. The Lord didn't say if they fast. He said when they fast, presuming that fasting is something that would be a part of the life that they would choose to lead. Look a few verses later, again, Matthew chapter 6, verse number 17, But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. In those two places, again, our Savior Himself made the rather direct teaching that those that would be His followers, and as often as you and I think about the urgency of that chapter and how we seek to make application to our life, isn't it true that many of the other features of Matthew chapter 6 we directly apply to us? Verse 24, a man can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one, despise the other, hold the one and hate the other one. That applies to us. Verse 33, we're told, are we not? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Verses 19 to 21, don't lay up treasures upon earth, but lay them up in heaven. Well, it's interesting in that very same context, the Lord made some references to fasting. When you fast, make sure you don't do it just to be seen of men. Should we be fasting today? Ought that to be a matter of more careful concern to us? We'll see more thoroughly about that as we proceed through the lesson even this evening. But you may notice the example of Jesus Himself as well as a few others. In Matthew chapter 4, when the Master was about to be tempted, you may recall, of course, that He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. There was an extended duration, almost a month and a half, of some kind of fasting on the part of Jesus. And during that time, that's when the, when the tempter came to Him. And remember, He said, turn these stones into bread. Now we understand why Jesus was so hungry. He hadn't eaten in such a long time. And yet even then, He did not succumb to the temptation. In that, He directly quoted Scripture and told the devil, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. But isn't it interesting, again, there was a period of fasting involved in that period of time in the life of Jesus. To that, might we add the following. In Acts chapter 13, we find an example of a congregation that fasted. In Acts 13, might I invite you to notice the first two verses of that chapter, and in fact, it even uh, proceeds into verse 3 as well. But here was the church at Antioch. As that congregation was making ready for supporting of the first missionary journey, that is to say the sending of Paul and Barnabas to distant places, the following references are made. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. We certainly understand that there was something to be said about the laying on of hands. But isn't it amazing that in that same connection, that congregation involved itself in a period of fasting for this great work that was about to take place. A congregation in fasting. 
To that, let's add another one. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul himself, on that occasion, in reflection upon his own life in service to Jesus, said, I have been in fastings often. It would appear that Paul fasted fairly often, at least enough to where that statement could thus be a correct statement. At this point, we've then seen a congregation. We've seen the Lord's teaching relative to this. And we have even now seen the example of a man named Paul. To all of that, might we then at least make this general statement. It seems as if the early church and individuals that were committed in service to God were those who at least gave their attention to fasting. It was something with which they were familiar and something that it would seem many of them participated in relatively often. And so again, the question, if there aren't specific health reasons that would make this dangerous... If there aren't particular matters, perhaps health-wise or others, that could lead to particular health challenges, should we consider fasting? Would it be something that might have benefit and value in our service unto God? Let's study even further as we proceed to the next slide. May we first, before we even attempt to answer that, be more specific about why would a person do this? What would those potential values be? I thought this slide might at least offer some help as you and I give thought to this. Let's begin like this. First, the kind of fasting again that we are specifically considering is that which has a religious reason by, behind it. It's not merely again for health purposes. A person who's trying to die can't claim that that's a religious fast. They're two separate things, for example. But what's more, what about some Old Testament appreciations? I've listed a number of references and will not read all of them in detail, but maybe at least mention the significance of them in passing. In Zechariah 8 verse 19, the Jews of the Old Testament era, underneath that law of Moses, there the prophet Zechariah, speaking for God to them, made note that they fasted in the fifth month, the seventh month, the eighth month, and the tenth month. There were at least four months of the year in which they were, in, were expected by God to be involved in fasting. Interesting, isn't it? Now again, that's what, those were Jews of the Old Testament. But what about some particular reasons as to when individuals chose to fast? May I offer these as considerations. In 2 Samuel 1 verse number 12, there was a time of grief. That is to say, great sorrow and lamentation. In fact, David was the one who was fasting on that occasion, and that which prompted his fast was this. He had just learned that both Saul and Jonathan had been killed. Now, Jonathan was a very close friend to David, and furthermore, he highly respected the kingship of Saul. And David, it says, fasted when he learned that those two had been killed. What about another example in Esther 4 verse 3? There, of course, that wicked Haman had brought about a plot whereby the Jews, under the decree of the king in Persia, would, were able to be put to death on the 13th day of the 12th month of the year. How did they react? They went into a period of fasting. Under the great grief of that sentence, they fasted and sought the guidance and aid of God as to what to do and how to do it. 
those are just two examples that at least highlight in these great moments of grief, individuals, sometimes lots of them, chose to fast. What about another case? Penitence. We also find a number of instances that when someone recognized that they were guilty of great wrongdoing, they would proceed to, of course, repent. But in that process, of the Old Testament at least, they would be given to an extensive period of fasting. Let me offer these examples. In 1 Samuel 7, verse 6, the people of Israel on that occasion, remember the Ark of the Covenant, after it had come back from Philistine territory, it stayed a long time at the house of Abinadab. When the people realized that they ought not have left God's Ark of the Covenant in this distant place for years and years, they repented. And in that time, they fasted. They were seeking the forgiveness of God for having been so careless with respect to the Ark of the Covenant and leaving it for all these years distantly located in Israel. They should have respected it more than that. They should have honored it more than that. They fasted. Another example in Nehemiah 9 verses 1 and following. Here as Nehemiah had come to the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem, he found that there were problems in the lives of the people and there was a great deal of fasting when he, upon preaching to them, they realized their error. It says they fasted. You'll notice in at least those two examples, in connection with the people's desire to be made again right with God, they entered into a period known as fasting. Maybe one more example. In Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 and following, this one, I admit, is very intriguing for the following reason. It has nothing to do with the people of God. These were Ninevites, heathen peoples. And yet, when Jonah came to them and said, in 40 days, God's going to overthrow this city unless you repent, they not only repented, but in the process of it, they fasted extensively. Isn't that interesting? Here was a heathen city given to fasting. Perhaps all of that said leads us to note this. In many other connections, it was expressly noted that fasting encouraged an attitude of humility. It encouraged an attitude of repressing one's own wishes and desires in deference to God's will. In the interest of serving Him, I will say it, lay aside my desires and wants, including food, and give myself wholly over this period. Sometimes, as we'll see in a moment, it was in a desire to make the right decision. Sometimes it's true that the fleshly attributes of life bring us to where our decision-making is perhaps influenced by the physical attributes in life. As we'll see in a moment, examples in the Bible are for individuals who, with a desire to make a decision that would be godly and righteous and wholly uninfluenced by the physical considerations of life, they'd fast. With that in mind, look at a few of these examples. In Ezra 8, verse 21, there the people of God under the leadership of Ezra we notice one more time that with their desire to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the other features of their life and service to God, they again had made many mistakes. 
and they were told, you need to humble yourself simply desiring to do God's will. And as a part of that fast, lay aside the concerns and cares of the body and focus exclusively on the will of heaven. Another example in Psalm 35, 13, as well as Psalm 69, we find even the psalmist, David, of course, highlighting not only the interest in fasting, but even encouraging it. Now, true that these most recent passages we've discussed have all been in the Old Testament. And we know we aren't under that law anymore today. What does the New Testament say about it? As you and I close that slide, one last thing. The fasting that was frequently entered into had a specific desire to make one acceptable unto God. And as a part to do that, it was to beseech God's wisdom, to beseech His insight, to beseech His guidance. Deuteronomy 9 and 2 Chronicles 20 are two examples, the second one involving warfare, as the people were making ready for war. They entered into a period of fasting that God might be with them in war. I might suggest, in a way, isn't that odd? You would think a soldier ought to have plenty of nourishment and food so he'd be strong enough to fight. And yet, in connection, at least on that occasion, there was a period of fasting The next slide will lead us to think more about the New Testament exposition of this because that really is more our interest to be sure this evening. It is an interesting consideration that Noah and Moses and many other characters in the Bible sought to serve God in a way that was pleasing. And certainly on occasion, there were many who entered into fasting. But what about the New Testament? May we begin in Matthew chapter 4. We noted a moment ago, Jesus is the one that fasted on that occasion. That was right before the temptations in which the tempter came to Him. May I suggest that was a distressing time. The Lord had the weight of the truth of God upon Him because again, we know if He had ever sinned, He couldn't have been our perfect sacrifice. He would not have been the one that could then bear your sins and mine to the cross He needed to be perfect. He never faltered. Those temptations never swayed Him. May I say in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5, a husband and wife, the following statement is given. In terms of the nature of intimacy in marriage, Paul on that occasion said, Husbands and wives ought not purposefully withdraw it from their partner unless... It's for the purpose of prayer and fasting. Now that means again that a husband and wife ought not keep from or forcibly abstain from sexual matters unless it is by consent for some religious exercise like prayer and fasting and only for again a protracted period of time. Otherwise, you may come to the point that temptation will get to you and you'll begin to think upon things that are not good. But there, fasting is mentioned. Let's add to that the following. In Acts 14, 23, this was the lesson text that Joe read earlier in our hearing tonight. May I invite you to consider the activities of this congregation in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. May I invite you to notice that it has to do with the appointment of elders and that which took place in light of that event. 
It says, And when they had ordained them elders in every church, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. This was a series, a set of congregations in the area of Asia Minor. It was those congregations in the area of Derby and Lystra. And we notice in connection with it, two years after establishing those congregations, elders were appointed. Those men had matured and advanced to the point where they now met the necessary qualifications, and they were appointed as elders. And in that connection, it says the congregation prayed and fasted. I'd like to suggest to you, in light of that verse alone, it would not be wrong for a congregation to fast today. If our elders chose, in light of some great decision, in light of some great matter that was troubling perhaps their congregation or even this vicinity or country, if it was their wisdom that it would be right and prudent for us to fast, we would be obligated to follow what they tell us. It would not at all be wrong. Here's a, new, here's a first century church that fasted. Let's add to that the following. In Acts 13.3, the congregation at Antioch, the church of the Lord at Antioch, as we've already read a moment ago, they fasted. They were in the process of sending forth Barnabas and Saul on the first missionary journey. And no doubt that was a great work. And it was a work that was fraught with great responsibility. Travel was difficult and dangerous in that time. And here we are sending these men hundreds and hundreds of miles away to serve and preach. Clearly it was a dangerous work and a serious task, and before they sent those men, they fasted and they prayed. Today, as a congregation gives thought to, we're about to enlist the services of a missionary, we're going to send him 7,000 miles away to work. It wouldn't be wrong for us to fast in light of that decision, to pray certainly in light of his safety and the work he's about to enter into. It wouldn't at all be wrong. As you and I think about fasting, you notice I've listed about the middle of the slide a number of additional summary thoughts. Fasting is appropriate for consideration at least in times of decision, in times of great service of impact, in moments of even illness or grave difficulties. Furthermore, it could well mark a moment of penitence. It might well mark a realization on a person's part, I have been in error, and I want more than anything else to be right with God. Now, I know that you and I think often about prayer, and certainly we should. Maybe we ought to be in a position to at least give some thought to times of fasting. Let's read some more about it. I just mentioned fasting and prayer, and it's a bit impressive to think about the number of times that those two activities are linked together in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. For instance, in Psalm 35, 13, both of them again are listed. As often as we think about one of them, we seem to hardly ever think about the other one. Should we think more about fasting? In Daniel 9, verse number 3, that great statesman prophet Daniel, who himself was in this position, of course, of wishing to help restore the great service of God's people. Both things are mentioned. 
In addition to those two, New Testament, Mark 9, verse 29, both of them again mentioned together, fasting and prayer. Let's add to that, again, Acts 13.3 and Acts 14.23, those two we've noted most recently. I say all of these things to say that the Word of God, it seems, calls upon us as frequently as we encounter it to at least wonder about the reality and the importance and perhaps the value attached to fasting. As you and I close that slide, let's look at several more quick appreciations. There does seem to be a number of instances in which spiritual strength is at least connected with and often increased as a result of fasting. In Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 11, again, a rather lengthy passage, and we'll not read all of it, but I will at least ask you to note it in connection with Isaiah 58, as mentioned again in just a moment. The Jews had at least a problem with fasting on this occasion. That chapter unfolds before us this. The Jews were in fact fasting often, but God wasn't happy with their fasting. In fact, He says, you really are not getting anything out of this. The problem was, it's not that the fasting itself was wrong, it's the way they were doing it. They were fasting just to appear righteous. Their heart really wasn't in it. Well, that's an immediate consideration for us. If you and I were to make a decision to fast, if it is to have the valuable thing behind it that God would command, let's make sure that we do it with the earnestness of following the teaching of the Scriptures, not merely to be seen of other people. What they know about our fasting is wholly immaterial. It is with that connection, I might say. In Matthew 17, beginning in verse 19, Jesus again had some things to say about fasting. And again, there was an element of strength, according to the Master's statement, that could at least be appreciated in it. At this point, might we notice, and let me highlight this more interestingly, one of the things the Jews, it seems, were frequently doing in the Lord's day is they'd fast frequently, but their heart wasn't in it. They did it just out of a habit, perhaps. Or they would, in fact, in the very words of Jesus, disfigure their faces just so everybody would know they were fasting. Jesus said, that's not the way to do it. For if that's the way you're doing it, you've already got your reward. The reward is what other people are thinking about your supposed piousness. The Lord said the way to really do it is fast in such a way, don't disfigure your face, don't go around wearing clothes just so they know you're fasting. You do it in secret. And your heavenly Father that knows it in secret will reward you openly. Again, may I say, it's not in our business, even if you and I choose to fast, to make a public display of it. The elders don't even need to know it. It's something that we would do in the conviction of our private service to the Lord, perhaps due to penitence, perhaps in matters of decision, in our desire to separate ourselves from the fleshly influences of life and commit ourselves fully in service with the prudence and wisdom available that can come from fasting. When fasting is spoken of that way, especially in light of these things we've seen in terms of the early church, it brings us to another set of considerations. Let's look at the next slide. We've already mentioned at least a few of these things. 
But let's now at least say this as well. You and I know that in terms of choosing with the authority of God to engage in activities today, we have to have our authority in one of three ways. Either there's a direct commandment to do it, there's an apostolic example of it with approval from heaven, or there's a necessary inference with respect to it. As far as I know, there is no direct commandment in the New Testament to fast. I have not been able to find a direct commandment that says, Thou must fast. But we have found lots of examples, individuals as well as churches in the New Testament, that engaged in fasting. I would submit that at that point it still is left in the realm of our own personal decision. You and I may well find it valuable in our service to God to fast. And if we do, let's make sure that we follow what we're about to study in terms of, again, doing it the right way. But again, if we choose not to fast, I can find no commandment that asserts that's completely wrong. Although given all the examples in it, maybe we ought to at least seriously consider whether we might be strengthened in our faith and in our service if we did. Some of these considerations... I'd like us to read at least a few of the verses from Matthew chapter 6 and to re-address some of what Jesus said about fasting and what they were doing wrongly about it on that occasion. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites. So first of all, note, there were some who were fasting, but Jesus said they're being hypocritical in this, of a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Jesus thus instructed those on that occasion that there are those who fast. Now, they have a sad countenance. They, in fact, want you to know that they are engaged in this religious activity. And in so doing, they disfigure their face. It's as if they put on makeup just so that you'll know that they're fasting. The Lord said, that's a hypocrite. You fast when you choose to do so. In an attribute and an effort of striving to serve God humbly, Your goal is not to impress other people with your supposed religious service. You'll be judged by God, and what they think is is irrelevant. And so, verse number 18, When you fast, anoint your head. So you wash your face, you clean up just like always, so that as you proceed through your daily activities, they won't be able to detect, at least obviously, that you're fasting. Now, clearly, if, of course, you offer them a meal and they refuse, they may explain the reason why so that they won't offend your feelings. But otherwise, you may well not know they're fasting. Let's add to that the following. There are several parallel teachings you may notice about the middle of the slide in verses 1 and 5 earlier in this same chapter. Take heed, verse 1 says that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. And then verse 5, 
And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of me. And verily, I say unto you, they have the reward. You'll notice a pattern. What some were doing concerning giving, what some were doing concerning prayer, was the same thing that some were doing concerning fasting. In other words, they give so a lot of people knew what they were giving. You can imagine how that would have happened. In that day and time, they didn't have paper money the way you and I do. They had coins. And so you could imagine someone who wanted a lot of people to know how much they were giving. When the particular element that was being passed, they could drop a lot of coins into that and everybody quickly know he gave a lot. Jesus said, if that's the way you're doing it, you're a hypocrite. You don't give a lot just because you want other people to know you're giving a lot. You give in secret. You give in a way to which, again, God knows what's taking place. Same in praying. There were those in the Lord's day who were praying right, and if you and I would say so, on the courthouse square, just so a lot of people could hear how eloquent they are, how righteous they are. You can imagine prayers that some would offer, according to Mark 13, would go on for a long period of time. Jesus said, that's not the way to pray. You may have a lot you want to say to God, all right. But when you pray to Him, your goal is not to have other people hear you. That's why we're so thankful when our gentlemen lead us in prayer, that they pray from the heart and they pray earnestly and honestly, and they pray lifting up holy hands, 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, and they lead our, our minds in connection to spiritual religious things. Let's, all of that, let's add to all of that this. One last thought about Isaiah 58. The children of Israel again, God reprimanded them there because their fasting was not done in the right way. He didn't condemn fasting per se, but He condemned the way they were doing it. I'd like to close the lesson in many ways with those final thoughts then. Would you and I be benefited by fasting? Perhaps so. Again, we've seen so many verses where Jesus seemingly presumed His disciples would fast. And in examples in the first century church where they did it, could we be blessed by it? I would submit that we often pray in our prayer given the difficulties our nation faces and the terrible decisions that sometimes are made. Would we be benefited in our connection to spiritual things if we fasted? It would seem that's a decision each of us has to make individually. And again, if our elders were to choose that it would be a wise thing for us as a congregation, then we'd be obligated to follow, if at all possible we could. But otherwise, it seems to be left in the realm of personal and individual service to God. Maybe you or your family could choose for a few hours or for a day to fast. If you do, may you be blessed in that endeavor. I'd say, of course, that if you and I choose then to stand before God righteously, may we think about fasting, it seems, in connection somewhat like the vows of the Old Testament. God didn't force them to take vows, but if they chose to do it, they had to carry those out rightly, properly, and justly, and they'd be blessed by God if they did. As we close this lesson tonight, this conclusion slide is all that remains. 
Fasting, as it's described for us in the Bible, is not a substitute for obedience. It would not be right to say, well, I have fasted, but I don't think I need to be baptized. Surely the fasting will cover it. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. Given that it's not a substitute for obedience, we know, again, it's only a connection to perhaps assist our faith in the maturity of it. Tonight, as you and I consider ourselves, how do you and I stand before God? Might you and I be blessed with fasting? Surely we could be. If you and I would like to make that choice, that decision for ourselves and family, may we do it with care and with wisdom, with insight. This evening, if you're not a faithful Christian, may I say that fasting will never be a substitute for being a faithful Christian. It will only enhance your life as a faithful Christian. If you need to become a Christian tonight, that can only be done by obeying the gospel Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And if we could assist you in that, we'd love to do it. If you have become a Christian, but you aren't faithful, you've allowed decisions and choices, and in your life they've brought disgrace to Jesus, to His church, for what you once stood firmly for. Don't you realize that you can come back to your first love? You don't have to remain in that condition of unfaithfulness. You can come back to a life of directed service and strong influence for the cause of the kingdom of God. We'd be honored to pray for you tonight. Upon your repentance and confession, God has promised to forgive you. 1 John 1 verse 9. Tonight, if we could help you, we'd love to do it. Let us know the way we can if we need to do that and do it at once while we stand and sing.